Well, if you will, turn in a copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 32. We are continuing our series on Exodus. Just to let you know, we'll be, Lord willing, finishing uh, this fantastic book in the next several weeks. We'll take a um, hiatus with some uh, um, topical sermons, and then we're heading into Ephesus, or Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians, uh, written to the church at Ephesus, um, but, but perhaps begin reading through Ephesians. It's a fantastic book. Uh, this morning we look at a very well-known passage. Uh, we look at the, uh, the incident of the golden calf in Mount Sinai. Uh, perhaps a story we all know. Um, and we say those silly Israelites. Uh, but what we find is a picture, a spiritual picture, too, of the idolatry of our hearts. Um, so let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. So, Father, we do thank you that you are king above all things, and you are king of our hearts. And you, O king, have revealed yourself to us by your word. Thank you for that. And we pray that you would send forth the Holy Spirit, that we might understand, give power and an unction not just to the preacher, but to the hearer as well. We pray these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Exodus chapter 32. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your God, O Israel, who brought you up by the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone. And my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing upon His people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back they were written. 
The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. (laughs) So they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now... If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Amen. Have you ever seen the t-shirt that says, I reject your reality and substitute my own? It's kind of a comical shirt. I reject your reality and substitute my own. Well, this accurately describes what happens with the sin of idolatry. The substitution for God of something, something else, someone else, some activity, some desire as the center or prioritizing factor of our lives. Certainly as we think of the context of the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai, this is what they have done. They have taken God's ordained reality and substituted their own. You know, if they had just looked up, they would have seen the great cloud of God's glory covering Mount Sinai and all around it. 
They didn't have to light fires at night. You know why? Because the pillar of God's cloud was there and lit up the skies. They didn't have to go searching for food very far because God gave them manna every day to eat. He had given them water time and time again. There was a reality that they were enjoying and they sought to substitute it with their own as they rejected the Lord their God and made this golden calf that they might worship it. But you know, this sort of sin is not just found in Exodus chapter 32, is it? It's found equally so in our own hearts. It constantly amazes me at how quickly I can corrupt my own dedication to the Lord who has saved me and redeemed me and given me the better manna, Christ Himself, who has given me better water, who has let me drink at the fount that is my Savior. And how quickly I go to worshiping other things, other people, or perhaps more deceitfully, deceitfully as I worship God and something else. Each of us fights this fight. We'll see this morning that the sin of idolatry, it angers the Lord. And, it, and, it's, and it's serious because it even threatens the purity of the church. And God calls us to repentance. Let's look at the sin of idolatry. What happens here? So 40 days before this, Moses had ascended to uh, the top of Mount Sinai. But, but first, God and His people had met in a very elaborate and, uh, and planned worship service with their God at the base of Mount Sinai, where Abraham, oh, excuse me, not Abraham, he's been dead a while. Moses made an altar and sacrificed the Lord, and 12 pillars were made around the altar, symbolizing God's 12 tribes around the altar, identifying the tribes with them. And twice in this service, the people, having heard the reading of the law, said, All that you have said, we will do. 40 days ago. And then Moses ascends to the top of Mount Sinai after having a fellowship meal with the other leaders in the very presence of God. And 40 short days have passed. The people are starting to get a little restless. They weren't told how long Moses would be gone. And it seems to have been a little longer than they had desired. They were ready to get on the road. They were ready to get on the road to the promised land. Sinai was a bit of a stopover. So while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments written on the stone tablets from God and receiving the detailed instructions for the tabernacle we've been looking at for the last month or so, the people are getting restless and their hearts begin to wander. So they go to Aaron. Aaron's the guy they should have gone to. He'd been left in charge. He would become the high priest later And they demand that He make gods for them that they can worship. Significantly, they ask for gods that will go before them, the text says. This this means they want a physical God they can see that will physically lead them to the promised land. They didn't live in a world that was used to serving a God they couldn't see. They, They had lived for a long time in Egypt. And in that world, it wasn't a god unless you could see it. And it was made out of silver or wood or gold or something along those lines. And so he went. They went to Aaron and he makes a golden calf, a golden cow 
first, what he probably would have done from the procedures of the day, made a, a wooden mold and then plated it with hot gold and then taken an engraving tool and, and sketched out or engraved the, the parts that uh, were distinct, like the eyes and the ears and the mouth. But why a cow? Of all things, why make a cow? Well, they've been in Egypt in a while, and in Egypt, the powerful gods were cows. We shouldn't miss this. This is the wholesale rejection of the Lord God Almighty. They had chosen an Egyptian symbol for their God. We know this more so, because when Aaron goes and he makes an altar... The fact that he makes an altar shows that they've turned their backs on the Lord because there's already an altar in the camp for the Lord. It was built back in Exodus 24, chapter, uh, 24 verse 4. He sees the altar of the Lord and he goes over there and builds another one to this fake God, this golden cow. They had turned their backs on the Lord. You know, it's often when hard times come that we really find out what's in our hearts. God knows what's in our hearts. But oftentimes He brings hard things in our lives or uses hard things to expose to us what is truly in our hearts. The Israelites were in a bad spot, two to three million of them. Where was their leader? He was missing. What did they do? They ran to the idolatry that was still lying in their hearts. And guess what? It's in our hearts too. Well, Aaron actually makes the situation worse, which is kind of hard to believe. See, he makes this golden calf for him, and then in an utter and spectacular failure of leadership, how many times should he have said no along the way? But then he says, okay, we can redeem this situation. Tomorrow we're proclaiming a feast to the Lord, Yahweh, L-O-R-D, Jehovah. He's going to mix the worship of the Lord God Almighty with the worship of this golden calf. Have you ever told your kids not to do something? And then you just kind of wish you hadn't told them not to do it. Because that's the exact same thing they go and do. This is kind of what happens here. Back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 23, the Lord God explicitly says this, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. Nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. How often do we do this? Now, hopefully, we don't have physical idols in our household, although there is one at the donut shop. Um, but how often do we mix our worship of the Lord with worship of the things of this world? Are our hearts really as pure and devoted to the Lord as we would like to think? I know mine's not. Cows weren't bad things. They gave you meat. You could use them for plowing. They gave you milk. And neither are good things that we turn to. Like fun and entertainment, sports, pleasure, family, jobs. Those are all good things. But then we turn them into the sacred cow, the golden calf. And we find ourselves worshiping the Lord and with a divided heart 
worshiping something else, someone else in our lives. And our God is a jealous God. And He brooks no rival. And He calls us to love the Lord our God with part of our heart and part of our mind and part of our souls and part of our strength. That's not what that text says. Every bit of who we are. And yet I worship many things besides my Lord. Perhaps you do too. It's called idolatry. The problem is that idolatry leads to immorality. This is what happens in our text. There's this really key phrase going on in verse, uh, chapter, in verse 6. rather, And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Um, they said they wanted to worship their false god. And what did they do? They threw a party. And not a very um, tame one at that. The phrase rose up to play usually means there's something lewd going on. The whole camp, two to three million of them, perhaps most of them, we don't know, are engaging in all sorts of things that bring God dishonor at the base of the mountain of God. When we reject God's reality and substitute our own, things begin to fall apart. It's like a busted play. It's like a scope that's out of whack. Whatever you do, the gun's not going to shoot straight. When our priorities get, up, get mixed up and we begin to worship God and something else, soon the priorities of our lives are messed up and it affects every part of us. And we begin to say yes to things we know we should say no to. This is exactly what's going on in the camp of God. The sin of idolatry angers the Lord. And we see this in verses 7 through 14. Because meanwhile, where is Moses? Moses is not missing. They know where Moses is. They saw him go up the mountain. They can't see him, but he's there. Up on the mountain, the Lord turns to Moses and he says, Look, Moses, this people that you... Did you hear this? The Lord distances himself from his people... The people that you brought out of the land of Egypt have done a great and terrible thing. They have made a golden calf. They are worshiping it. Go down, Moses. Go down. In fact, he says, leave me alone that I might destroy every one of them and start over with you, Moses. But Moses intercedes. In fact, in the King James Version, it says that God repents. It's not the best translation. But the New American Standard Bible says that God changed His mind. Our text in the ESV says God relented. How in the world are we supposed to make sense of that when Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says that I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning? It's all been determined. How can God change His mind? I think the best answer here is that from man's perspective, it looked like God had changed his mind. But in reality, God was setting Moses up to step up to the plate. Moses was the leader of God's people, and he acts as their mediator, one who intercedes between two parties. And hearing God's uh, displeasure with his people, he says, (laughs) wait just a second, God. Let me remind you of all your promises. Remember what you told Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember that you promised to make them into a great nation, numbering the the stars of heaven and elsewhere the sands on the shore. 
Notably, it can't start over with Moses because the promise we are told in Genesis chapter 49 tells us it's going to come not through the Levites, but through Judah. And Moses is not of the line of Judah. The promised one can't come from him. And so God relents. He does not destroy them. But that's not to say that they are going to get away scot-free. What do we learn from this? The penalty of idolatry is destruction, is the curse of God. And y'all, every time that you and I, we focus on the Lord a little less and focus on other things as the prioritizing element of our lives, and we worship people, things, places, experiences more than God, we deserve God's judgment. But we have a better mediator. Moses interceded for God's people, Israel, and our Savior has interceded for us. The sin of idolatry angers the Lord and it endangers the purity of the church. We see this in verses 15 through 29. So Moses does what God tells him. He descends from the mountain. He goes down, and on the way, he picks up Joshua. Now, Joshua is the only person in Israel who doesn't know what's going on. Moses has been up on the mountain. God's told him what's happening. Those at the bottom of the mountain, Israel themselves, they know what's going on because they're doing it. Joshua hears the sound. He's a general, and he says, Moses, there's a battle going on down there. And Moses says, no, it's not the sound of victory or the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. Apparently their revelry, their quote-unquote worship they had wanted to do, which had turned into a crazy party, was so loud it could be heard at the top of the mountain. So Moses comes down and he does the unthinkable. Can you imagine their surprise when there's Moses? It's kind of like when you go away and your kids end up doing something they're not supposed to. And you show up and they say, oh, hey, mom and dad. Hey, Moses. What does Moses do? One commentator says that Moses takes the most precious, most important objects that exist in the world at that point. The two copies of the Ten Commandments. There are two copies of it because in a treaty, a copy is given to each party. These two tablets, it wasn't one through five here and six or ten on the other. It was, uh, it was written on both sides of two copies of stone. He takes them and he goes to the base of the mountain, the foot of the mountain, a very strategic place, a place where they had worshipped their Lord and their God and entered into covenant, and he throws them down on the rocks. The most precious, important things that exist in the world, he throws them on the rocks. Why? Because the terms of the agreement had been broken. Number two shall not make any graven images. Number one, have no other gods before me or besides me. The two fundamental ones, to worship God alone and then how to worship Him. Two to three million people, parting at the bottom of the, of the mountain, directly disobeying those two. He throws them down, but he's not done. He takes the golden calf, he burns it. Remember, the inside is probably made out of wood, and then he grinds it into a fine powder, and he throws it into the water, the drinking water, and Israel ends up drinking it. Why do they do that? It's probably because when you drink metal, it is eventually eliminated, and then it's defiled, never to be used again for any purpose, not for God's tabernacle and not for another idol. 
And then he turns to Aaron and he says, What have you done? What have these people done to you that you would lead them into such a great sin? You know, Aaron's just full of great excuses here. First one is, Hey, Moses, you know these people. (laughs) And then the classic one here in verse 24, So they gave it to me, the gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Isn't it amazing how that works? It's a silly excuse. Are ours any less ridiculous? Perhaps we're a little better than Aaron and making them sound good. Those who look at our lives and see those parts of our lives where we worship something, someone, an experience, whatever it is, besides the Lord our God, or more than the Lord our God, we make all sorts of excuses. Remember, the sin of idolatry angers the Lord. But Moses isn't done. He goes to the gate of the entrance of the camp and he calls out, Who's on the Lord's side? Remember this phrase when we sing our, our final hymn. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And apparently out of all the people, only the Levites come. Now note, Aaron was probably one of these. It wasn't just because you had sinned that, that all of a sudden you were disqualified. We have no reason to believe that, that, that the Levites were pure when all this was going down. They were very likely right alongside Aaron, their boss, and worshiping the golden calf, but they apparently had repented of their sins and were now able to say, I am again on the Lord's side. Isn't this how our fight with idolatry works? As we look at our lives and we see that we've gone after things, we know we shouldn't have again the same things, and we say, Lord, forgive me. I'm on your side because you're on mine. I am one of the sheep of your pasture, though I wander away a lot. Thanks for bringing me back. And so the Levites line up with, with, uh, with Moses, and Moses says, All right, take your sword, go through the camp, to and fro, gate to gate. And it's time to kill some folks. It's likely there are only 3,000 people that are killed out of 2 to 3 million, so it's likely the people who were killed were those who were still intent on worshiping the calf, unrepentant, and would not change. Most likely the ringleaders. This perhaps seems a little harsh to us. There's blood everywhere. In front of the children, I mean, it's just awful. This seems perhaps a little harsh, but we have to understand that idolatry is a threat to the purity of God's people. If there had remained in the covenant people a large contingent or even small contingent of those who are not dedicated to the Lord, but dedicated to idolatry, this golden calf, it would have eventually led God's people astray. This is exactly what happens when God's people come into the promised land. They do not destroy the foreign um, nations like they should. And over a long period of time, suddenly God's people living in the promised land turn from the Lord. God sends the Assyrians and the Babylonians to destroy them and take the survivors out. It's a dangerous thing. We see this in the church as well, right? Idolatry can threaten the health of a congregation and even a family unit. When we order our lives around things other than the Lord's priorities, it threatens to upset God's designs for our lives and for our families. Think about this men as we lead our families. If we don't lead our families with the right priorities, spending the the precious moments of our time pursuing the Lord, as those things get crowded out, what will our children see? It threatens the purity of the congregation and the family. 
The sin of idolatry angers the Lord and endangers the purity of the church. And God calls us to repentance. We see this in verses 30 through 35. Moses goes back up to the mountain to see if he can make atonement for the sins of the people. Moses serves as a mediator, a go-between two parties. Look at verses 31 and 32. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sins... And it's almost like he runs out of things to say. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is willing to take the punishment for his people. But he couldn't. He was but a man. But there was a better Moses who had come. A better mediator. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And He would take what we deserve. And He would stand in our place so that we might be healed of our idolatry, forgiven of our idolatry, and given new hearts as the Holy Spirit invades our hearts and makes them fast upon our Savior. How would He do this? We get a glimpse in verse 35, the last verse of our text. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. We have no other information about this plague. We don't know if it was on their livestock. We don't know if he killed a bunch more of them. We don't know if he made them sick. We have no clue what this plague was. But it is clear that idolatry and our sin deserves the curse and the plague of God. And it's what you and I deserve. We deserve God's anger and plague in this life and in the next in hell forever. You and I. But the fantastic news is that our Savior has come and He has taken the plague of God's wrath and curse on the cross for us. So that we who look to Him in faith, who say, Lord, I sure am sorry for my idolatry. I sure am sorry and I repent and I ask for your forgiveness for all the ways that I've turned and run run away from you. I've, I've run and I've run and I've run. Forgive me. I turn my life over to you. To this person, he will give the gift of eternal life. We will know no plague. We will know no curse. We will know no sickness or sin or temptation as we live with him forever. Not in the promised land of the Old Testament, but in the true promised land of heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do yearn for the promised land as we stand looking over the Jordan into Canaan where our true promises and blessings lie. Lord, we pray that you would come soon and end our pilgrim days that we may no longer see by faith but with our eyes. Until then, O Lord, help us to keep our hearts set upon Thee. Help us, O Lord, to say no to idolatry and worship You alone. We say that we are on your side. In the name of Jesus, amen.